If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody. I am the aforementioned Sal, along with my co-host, the ever-genial Eagle One of Eagle Speak. We really appreciate you taking time today to join us for another edition of Midrats. And as we like to do, for those that are joining us live, and we're doing it a little at a little bit of a different time live this week, so I don't know if some of our folks uh, maybe uh, didn't adjust their calendar. But if you're with us live, if you scroll down to the bottom of the show page, that's where you will find the chat room. That's a great place if during the course of the show you have some observations you would like to share, or if there are some questions you would like for us to address our guests We'll monitor that during the course of the show, and we'll be glad to bring in your good ideas as we go forward for the next hour. And for the next hour, um, as described in the preliminary work, uh, preliminary post um, advertising the show, what we're going to do today is we're going to look back, uh, which we've had a few shows over the course of the last six months or so on Afghanistan. And today with our guests, we've got an opportunity to go back both to look at a very personal story that uh, those who were out and about at the time uh, really uh, remember and it galvanized uh, in the early months of the conflict, uh, what people thought and uh, what people began to understand about some of the larger aspects of the conflict, but also uh, what we did and how we reacted and what Afghanistan uh, was like in 2001, its commonality with what it was before and what it has become today. And our guest to discuss that is going to be uh, uh, the author – oh, excuse me, that I just muted myself, but now I'm back on board. It's going to be author Toby Harden. He's also a journalist and winner of the Orwell Prize for Books. He's a former foreign correspondent for the Sunday Times of London and the Daily Telegraph, who reported from 33 countries and uh, somebody who should feel right at home here on Midrats. He also spent 10 years as an officer in the Royal Navy before becoming a journalist. Toby, welcome to Midrats. Hi, great to be with you. Thank you. Well, we really appreciate you coming on, and, and congratulations on uh, the book. And it's, uh, you know, the, the timing is interesting, so to speak, when it came out in 2001. Yeah. And how everything, how everything wrapped up um, the way that it did in August. And uh, I thought it just as, a, as an opportunity for you to, to set the table for the listener is uh, the book I found uh, interesting in this regard in that it's a very personal story uh, about individuals and people. And oftentimes when you're looking at big sweeping events, it's just the events and the big pieces on the map that, that move. But the further granular you get, you actually have individuals. And occasionally, um, like it was for uh, one of the principal players in your story, um, if not the personal player of the story, uh, you can get down to very granular individuals that, 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 that tell a, a, a interesting story about nations and institutions and larger events. But it's also a great review for those, you know, it's easy to forget 
that we had been involved with it for 20 years, which means uh, a lot of people, they were not adults, are in their teens or actively looking when things kicked off. And it gives a snapshot of Afghanistan when we decided that we wanted to become another part of its story. So uh, just as a backgrounder, what brought you to um, the, the story and uh, made you realize that this is a book that, that you needed to produce? Yeah, certainly. Well, it was a kind of a, a long and winding road, really. Um, I mean, my background, as you, you know, you can tell from that, accent, as, you, as you mentioned, is British. Um, but I was uh, yeah, a foreign correspondent. Uh, I, you know, after my time in the Navy, I, I was a news reporter in London briefly. And then my big break was Northern Ireland. Um, and then I was, because Northern Ireland became political, I got the reputation for being able to cover politics, even though I've never been a lover of politics. Um, so I got sent to Washington in 99 and was just kind of wondering a little bit about, um, you know, how this sort of fitted my sort of, you know, talents and sort of aspirations, because it seemed like a lot of guys in suits and, you know, the Oval Office, Capitol Hill, et cetera. But then, of course, 9-11, you know, I'd been, I'd been in the U.S. for, um, for two years on 9-11, and, you know, I was walking into the office in Washington, D.C., and this reports of a plane that, you know, flown into the World Trade Center. And, you know, that cliche that's also true, you know, my life changed as, as did so many others. Um, and so, you know, I wanted to get to Afghanistan. I was fr pretty frustrated that I couldn't. Uh, but obviously, they wanted the guy in Washington to cover the Washington politics. And, I, you know, I, I was pretty well established um, covering the Bush administration at that point. Um, but I vividly remember... Um, Mike Spann being killed um, in the news and how rare it was for a CIA officer to be um, his affiliation to be made public and Mike's funeral at Arlington Cemetery on um, in early, I think it's December 7th, uh, 2001 and Shannon Spann, also a CIA officer whose affiliation was also made public um, you know, delivering this sort of beautiful eulogy and I remember jo John Walker Lynn, the so-called American Taliban, this American from California um, that was that was one of the prisoners in fact he was al-Qaeda um, and but then everything moved on it was anthrax and Iraq and, and all the rest of it um, but you know it, it really just stuck with me what an amazing you know person Mike Spann sounded like and, and, and just what was what was he doing there what was the story of the team and then a couple of years later um, well probably about three years later I was in Iraq uh, strangely enough and somebody said did you ever see the footage that CIA officer who was with Mike Spann, you know, running through the fort uh, in Masri Sharif. And I hadn't, so I looked at it. And, and that was David Tyson, um, who was a, actually a CIA case officer, not a paramilitary. Mike was a paramilitary. And, um, you know, there's this footage of him with clutching an AK and a pistol, um, running through the fort and sort of bursting into this building on the north end of the fort and sort of bumping into a German film crew. And I remember looking at David's eyes, you know, these classic sort of thousand yards there. Um, and he just, he'd just seen Mike killed. He'd um, just killed dozens of Al-Qaeda getting out. And he was not an elite warrior type by any means. And he, was a, his back, he had served in the army for a couple of short stints. But his background was sort of linguist um, and academic in Central Asian studies. Um, and I just remember looking at David and thinking, like, what has that guy been through? You know, he's just, he's just been through this sort of carnage, this near-death experience. He doesn't know whether he's going to survive the next few hours. He doesn't know how he's going to get out. And you know, I just, I was just fascinated by him. And so um, a few years later, it was about 2013, um, I was back in the States and kind of, you know, covering U.S. politics. I was covering Chris Christie's run for re-election in New Jersey and not feeling kind of delighted about, you know, the story or, or the person actually either. Um, and so I, I decided to, to try and track David down and um, I, you know, I found an acknowledgement to him in, a, in an academic book and I, I emailed um, a professor at Indiana University and then, so I was in New Jersey and the phone rang and it was David Tyson. So, um, and so we met up and he was still serving in the CIA and I couldn't, um, he, he couldn't really talk to me in any great depth. Um, and, you know, he was probably sort of sounding me out and, and sort of reporting back. Um, but I could tell from the way he spoke uh, that he, on some level, really wanted to tell this story and that he was telling it internally. Um, and so 
for various reasons, not least that David was still serving, it kind of got shelved at that point. But then 2019, I thought, well, you know, 20th anniversary of 9-11 is, um, is approaching. And it looks like um, the end of our involvement in Afghanistan is, is approaching. Although at, this, at that point, I didn't know it was going to end sort of exactly on the anniversary or, or just, just before, in fact, in the end of the deadline. Biden's first deadline was the 20th anniversary for, you know, the deadline for pulling out troops. And so I thought this is the time, you know, and, um, and I actually got the deal without having anything guaranteed. I mean, I'd spoken to some Green Berets in 2013, and I was pretty confident David would speak, but not certain. Uh, but there were no guarantees. And then I, I had the contract signed, you know, and a month later, David emailed me and said, hey, sorry, I haven't been in touch. I've just retired. I'm ready to talk. And so it went from there, and I just, sort of, I just pieced it together. And then it was sort of like parallel tracks. There was, there was the book research and writing. Um, and at the same time, uh, obviously, the anniversary was approaching, but also the end of our involvement. And then we went, we went to the 2020 campaign. Both candidates were pretty much committed to um, pulling out all American troops. And so it just, it just you know, it just happened um, to, to come at this point, you know, which, you know, also my pitch had been, this is history now. You know, it's not classified. It's just, we're not going to compromise any sources and methods here. Uh, and also most people had retired, but were still young enough to kind of, um, you know, most, be mostly alive and mostly be able to recall the event. So, yeah, that's how it came about. Well, a couple of questions. One, one is, did you have to uh, get this vetted by the CIA at all, or was it uh... – uh, was that necessary? And the, the second question, well, go, go ahead and answer that one first. So did the CIA get a look at this yeah, before you no, published it? No, they didn't. No, they didn't. And I've been through an extremely bruising experience with a book I wrote before called Dead Men Riven with the British Ministry of Defense um, in 2011. They ended up with the book being pulped, first print run being pulped. And, you know, there's no First Amendment there, and it's a very different, you know, the deal was to get the, get the access and get the embed. I had to submit the manuscript, and they would vet it for, you know, accuracy and security, which were two very elastic terms. And that, that turned into an absolute nightmare. So I was, I was concerned about that. But, no, I had no relationship with the CIA. I had no in with them. Uh, and I started off just, you know, I talked to David. I talked to J.R. Seeger, the chief, who's long retired. I talked to Justin Sapp, who was a Green Beret, detailed to the team who was still serving, but, you know, just found him on LinkedIn. And they were all sort of talking. And then at a certain point, um, you know, one guy, Andy, on the team, um, a paramilitary, was still serving, and is still serving, pretty senior now, um, but he couldn't speak to me without agency permission. So I sort of, you know, somewhat tentatively and with, you know, a lot of nervousness, contacted the agency public affairs branch, and said, hey, this is what I'm doing. And they were like, yeah, we know. <laughs> uh, word travel. Um, but they were pretty quickly um, helpful. Now, they didn't open the vaults. They didn't give me all their cables or anything like that. All my freedom of inf information requests were refused. I mean, that's a different department. But they did give the okay for serving officers uh, to talk to me and retirees who were still contracting and wanted the okay from the agency. Uh, so, yeah, that's how I did it. But at no point did I ask, did they ask, and at no point would I have ever given them the manuscript. Um, and so that was, you know, I was I was pleased about that. Well, when you um, – one, one of the – I mean, one of the, under, the great things, I, when I read the book, I'm going, well, this, this guy, the, the people with the local knowledge or at least the ability to speak the language – of the area were were essential to whatever success we had early on in this in the uh, Afghan adventure, um, and you focused on on, on David Tyson as the uh, as a key figure. Uh, what about the, what about the background of the other people that already served in that area, uh, to and their knowledge of the local uh, political, if you want to call it political, in those in that area. Uh, local knowledge of the tribes and the, and the uh, various alliances that as they came and, and went. How important was that? Yeah. Well, it was very important. But, you know, this experience was thin on the ground, even at the CIA. So clearly the context for all this and uh, the backgrounds, which I wanted to include with a light 
sort of touch because, I, you know, it's, it's not a sort of dry as dust history book, as, as, you, as you say. It's very much a people-driven narrative uh, that also speaks to the broader context. But I really do believe the best stories uh, are about people and they help, they help to sort of draw you in and, um, and, you know, and relate to those events. Um, but it's interesting. So the makeup of the team. So we're talking about CIA Team Alpha, who was the first CIA team behind an enemy line. So there was a previous team, Jawbreaker, that went into the Panjshir Valley, but they were with the Northern Alliance in, in sort of safe territory. And it turned out the Tajiks from the Northern Alliance, Ahmed Shah Massoud had just been assassinated by Al-Qaeda two days before 9-11. And the Tajiks didn't really move, um, didn't want to fight. They wanted money. They wanted lots of U.S. bombing, et cetera, et cetera. But Team Alpha worked with Abdul Rashid Dostum, an ethnic Uzbek and the sort of warlord from Central Casting who'd, who'd fought with the Soviets against the Mujahideen, notoriously brutal and notorious for uh, switching sides. So if you look at Team Alpha, so there are eight of them. And there were, two, there were two with um, with deep linguistic and cultural experience. And the first one was J.R. Seeger, the chief. So he was a former 82nd Airborne captain. He also had degrees in ancient history and anthropology. Uh, he was a Dari linguist. And he'd worked uh, with the Mujahideen against Gotham um, uh, out of CIA's Islamabad station in the 1980s. And the other person... Uh, with the linguistic and local expertise was David Tyson, um, who had, re you know, who was a fairly, he was 40 years old at the time. JR was 47. Um, so these are people who'd been around a bit. Um, and David had joined the CIA just uh, three or four years before, and he was the only Uzbek speaker uh, in the CIA, and also spoke Dari and lots of other languages. And he'd lived in Central Asia for several years, um, and uh, you know, at one point he, got, he was so close to going native he didn't own a pair of shoes. Um, and the rest of the team was, was sort of more conventional, more what you would expect. Um, Alex Hernandez was the deputy chief. He was a uh, former 10th group Special Forces Sergeant Major uh, who had a full career in Special Forces and went on to have a 20-year sort of, um, paramilitary career in the, in the, in the CIA. Um, there was Mark Rausenberger, who was a medic, um, former Army. Justin Sapp, who was a serving Green Beret, who was, who was detailed to the team. Um, Andy, I mentioned, was the former Special Forces um, reservist, um, uh, who had, was also relatively recently joined. And Mike Spann, who was a former Marine and uh, uh, Anglico, you know, Air Naval Gunfire Liaison Company, uh, uh, officer who, who was also uh, fairly uh, new to the CIA. So it was, it was an eclectic team of some, you know, elite warriors, but also linguists and sort of Afghan hands, if you like. And, you know, if we could have replicated that, you know, across Afghanistan, you know, for the next couple of years, things may have been different. But certainly with Team Alpha, you know, with using really the principles of the you know, OSS, um, and you know, alongside Green Berets and ODA came in shortly afterwards, ODA 595, the famous four soldiers. And, you know, the, the principles were that it was, it was an Afghan fight, very small numbers of Americans. I mean, in this period, we had hundreds of Americans, not, you know, 100,000. And they were advisors to the indigenous resistance who were fighting the foreign invaders of the Taliban. Uh, and, and more specifically, uh, the Arabs from Al-Qaeda. Um, and, you know, most of the fights, I mean, there was the awesome might of, um, of uh, U.S. air power above, um, you know, Navy jets and U.S. Marine Corps and, and, and Air Force, and, and that certainly, you know, tilted the, um, the, the military equation. But the bulk of the fighting on the ground was done by the Afghans on, on horseback, you know, with the, with the Americans one side. And the Americans, you know, they had soft lands to, um, you know, call in laser-guided missiles, but they went in, you know, Team Alpha went in with Kalashnikovs um, and, and Glock pistols. No body armor, no helmets, uh, no uniforms, no cool kit. Um, and so it was kind of old school. It was like the Jedburgh teams, um, you know, in, in, in World War II of, of, of SOE. 
um, and OSS and all those all those principles. And you know, it was a provisional victory. It's, it's easy to remove a regime, as we know, and, and much less easy to sort of fill a fill a vacuum afterwards. Um, but um, we essentially won much more quickly than anybody would think, and then of course spent you know I guess the next few decades slowly losing. It's it's interesting. That's that's one thing that I enjoyed about the the book. As reg, regular listeners know, um, you know, we've talked on previous shows about um, you know the staff weenie view back in the the fall of 2001 and the, the winter of 02 is we're in for some type of small little operation um, somewhere between punitive expedition and just a very specific mission, very much in line with, you know, and again, if you could flesh out a little more, I thought one of the more interesting characters early on was, was Kofor Black. And it almost seemed like yeah. the problem was a different definition of this when you are asked, can you do this? Cooper Black and his CIA said, okay, if you define this as throwing over the Taliban and using the indigenous people to do that, yeah, we can do this. But uh, I guess it wasn't very, very well communicated, or do you think it had yet to fully evolve that Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, um, their definition and the administration's definition of what this would be, which I guess – you could pull a thread and uh, somewhere between D.C. and Brussels and the Bonn Accords afterwards redefined what this is. Um, yeah. Do you see that disconnect between defining this early on that kind of led to what you said two decades later of slowly losing? Yeah, so that's a good way of putting it. The this changed. I think that this at the beginning. So, I mean, so the CIA, again, this is part, an important part of the context, which you know, not many people sort of, remember at this point so you you'd had obviously you'd have the, the soviet um period from the invasion um you know the, de the you know the decade of the 80s essentially um when the when the soviets had, had occupied they you know they left in 89 and the cia had been deeply involved in afghanistan you know giving stinger missiles to the to the uh, mujahideen and helping defeat um Soviets in Afghanistan, and you know, arguably, um, and a lot of CIA people would claim that, that was, you know, one of the nails in the coffin of the, of the, of the Soviet Union. But then the United States left, um, and there was a small number of, of Afghan hands who, you know, stayed in in contact. And then in the 1990s, you had the the, the rise of Al Qaeda, and eventually, uh, by I think 96, you had um, Bin Laden. Um, being given sanctuary, leaving Sudan and being given sanctuary, Afghanistan, uh, along with Al Qaeda, by the by the Taliban regime. And so, and then, so then you had the Alex Station, the Bin Laden unit within the, in the CIA, which was part of the counterterrorism center, which was led by Cobra Black, um, sort of sounding the alarm. And you you, you know you had the USS Cole um, in uh, I think it was uh, October um, 2000. Uh, you had the embassy bombings in East Africa in 1998. So, you know, Al-Qaeda killing Americans, attacking, um, you know, major American targets. And in more and more intelligence that Al-Qaeda is coming to America. And so the, the alarm was being, was, was being sounded, um, and it was, you know, this kind of blinking red was the phrase used by George Tenet, then the CIA director, you know, by 2001. But from 99... Um, there were CIA officers flying into Afghanistan. And in fact, David Tyson was uh, on one of the early missions in 99. They'd fly in from you know, Tajikistan into the Panjshir Valley and talk to Ahmed Shah Massoud about you know, gathering intelligence and, and helping him financially. And there were lots of sort of caveats. And, you know, the CIA wanted to go kill bin Laden. Clinton administration and the Bush administration, you know, weren't really into that because you know, assassinations and, 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 and all that kind of stuff. Of course, all that changed on 9-11. On, on but on 9-11, to the CIA, it would be too much to say that they had a plan, but they had a kind of a concept of, of you know, working with the indigenous uh, resistance uh, against Taliban, uh, the Taliban and, you know, by extension, Al-Qaeda. Pentagon didn't have a plan. I mean, it was, it was astonishing, really. Um, but, you know, Tommy Frank's, 
basically came up with nothing. So, you know, it'll take two or three months to come up with, you know, something, you know, with hundreds of thousands of troops sort of rolling in. And uh, Bush, you know, and the nation in a way, I think, um, they weren't into that. We wanted vengeance. We wanted to get these people immediately. We wanted to stop the next attack. And so Kofa Black, as you say, you know, he's a very sort of theatrical character, you know, legendary case officer um, in Africa, and, you know, uh, tracked down um, Abu Nizal, and uh, you know, he was targeted himself by Al-Qaeda at, at one point. And um, it was kind of Kofa Black's moment and the CIA's moment because they had the, the concept of the plan and the, the Pentagon was kind of, you know, frozen in place. Rumsfeld was very upset. And, um, and Kofa Black also, you know, he's a case officer, so he knows how to build a rapport. He, know how, you know, he knows his, his, his sort of target, and his target was really to persuade Bush. And so he gave this, you know, kind of very bloodthirsty presentation, um, about, you know, talking a lot about, you know, killing these guys and said, you know, when we're over, there's going to be flies walking across their eyeballs. Um, and, you know, Bush loved this, and, you know, and, it, and, and that was kind of the mood of the, of, of the nation at the time as well. But this, you know, going back to this that you, you mentioned, was, was basically um, remove al-Qaeda, um, gather intelligence about who carried out uh, 9-11, and, um, and, and prevent the next attack. It, it wasn't build, a, you know, centralized, uh, you know, shining beacon of democracy um, in Afghanistan, you know, based in Kabul and, you know, excluding the, the so-called warlords from, from power and pumping money and, you know, big army and uh, big military and, and huge bases and supply lines and all, all, of, all the stuff it became. I mean, ironically, and I think sort of tragically, I think it was the, it was the success, you know, you know, relative and provisional but the success and the speed in which we toppled, um, you know, Team Alpha and the Green Berets and, and all those guys top, toppled the Taliban regime in 2001 that led the Bush administration to sort of think, well, this is easy. Regime change is pretty easy. We'll go do another one in Iraq and, you know, we'll, um, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll um, try and change Afghanistan into, um, you know, a better country that we can have bases in, you know, long term and, uh, and will be um, kind of you know a beacon of, of light in the in the region and in the world. And you mentioned the Bonn conference. I mean, you know, I'm not trying to sit, sit here in 2022 and pretend any of this would have been easier. Or if only we'd done this, then it all would have worked out fine. But you know, the Taliban, the mood was with us or against us. You know, they're terrorists or they're allies. And the Taliban would you know were they were not invited to Bonn, and even though Karzai, who was the, you know, the chosen leader by the West and very sort of palatable to you know, American and, and, and Western kind of sensibilities, he wanted more portion of the Taliban incorporated into the new regime, which would have been Afghan tradition, and uh, you know, they would have been obviously uh, you know, negotiating the Taliban from a position of, of, of great weakness. But Rumsfeld was and the Bush administration was like, no way, absolutely not. You know, we, we, you know, we, these people are, you know, if not dead, dead to us, and we're going to have, have nothing to do with them. And, um, and so, you know, and there were people at the time, I mean, the CIA officer called Arturo Munoz, you know, who was talked to me, you know, he's, he's still angry about it 20 years later, that we had the opportunity to um, negotiate it with the sort of defeated rump of the, of the Taliban, and, and it, you know, the whole thing um, uh, could have changed. Uh, we, would have, we would not have been on this track of, you know, banishing the Taliban and then eventually uh, regenerating. And, and, you know, and obviously at the end, the negotiation was essentially, you know, under the Trump administration, a, an American surrender to the Taliban. So, um, yes, yeah, this very much changed from, a, from a, a limited operation in 2001 to some, you know, the classic sort of mission creep of a, of a much broader and evolving this uh, as the years went on. Yeah, there's a, there's so much to unpack in this stuff because uh, a lot of the the 
book discusses the frequently changing alliances and or pretend alliances and uh, the relationships between the the various uh, ethnic uh, and religious you know the Sunnis and the and the Shias and the and the, uh, the all that plus the 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 context of the relationship with Pakistan and the other surrounding countries. I mean, a lot of it's the the great game uh, with slightly different players, but but it's the same uh, ease with which some of these folks just change sides. The uh, the trick that was yeah. played on the, on the uh, by the Taliban and Al Qaeda and getting the prisoners taken uh, in that eventually ended up with Mike Spann's death. But talk about that a little bit, about the, the environment that, that we got yeah. ourselves into. And we seemed a little fuzzy on that as we got in. I think we did a pretty good job, as you said, early on with with early success. But I'm not sure we really understood the uh, the total picture of what we were playing with. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, there was early success, but it was very complicated. And it's sort of almost um, eerie. Uh, I mean, I found in the research and talking to, to people how there were sort of indications of, uh, of problems to come. So even, even in success in this, you know, relatively limited operation. And, um, you know, so yes, the, the, the Trojan, yeah, so if you look at the, so shifting alliances, um, this kind of murkiness of, of, of um, relationships between Afghan tribes and, and ethnic groups, the, the very fuzzy notion of surrender, uh, um, of, of, you know, also uh, operational problems. Like there was, a, a, you know, a big uh, friendly fire uh, incident on November the 26th during the Battle of Kalajangi when a 20,000-pound uh, JDAM was dropped, dropped by the U.S. Marine Corps F-18, you know, on, on, the, on the friendly position. And in success, a lot of these complications and these, these problems, which could have been indications of this is really murky and complicated, uh, even in the limited operation, do we really want to get into that? They, they were sort of, you know, David Tyson was fascinating on this because he's, he's a guy who, you know, speaks near fluent Uzbek, um, had, you know, been in and out of Afghanistan and really bonded with the Afghans and understands them on a level, I think, that very few uh, Americans do and he he said that he had a realization about a month into this and he would talk about the Afghan onion peeling the Afghan onion like the different layers of, of sort of intrigue and nuance where you think something straightforward but actually there are several layers of stuff underneath it that that shows it, it's it's not straightforward and he said he 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 came to the conclusion you know after about a month that um, he could spend several lifetimes uh, in Afghanistan, <laughs> speaking the language and, and sort of, you know, talking to the people and, 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 and working with them. And he would never fully understand it. And he's still like that to this day. I mean, he's still working with Afghans now, getting, you know, getting Afghan allies out of, out of the country. And so, um, you know, November 25th, 2001, as you mentioned, you know, the, the, the uprising, the Al-Qaeda uprising in the fort, which was masterminded by Mullah Fazl, who was sort of known as the butcher of the north at the time, you know, ethnic cleansing of Hazaras, and he was the deputy defense minister, and is now the deputy defense minister in the new Taliban regime. I mean, he his his plot was in some ways um, genius, you know, uh, to have a, a fake surrender, uh, to, to sort of use the Afghan tradition of, of not properly searching, sort of kind of honor in surrender, um, to have these guys who none of whom were Afghan um, basically sort of, you know, go behind the, uh, the Northern Alliance lines into the fort and stage an uprising, you know, which was part of a plan to retake Masri Sharif, which if it had been coordinated a little bit better and maybe they'd had um, slightly, you know, better luck, it, it, it may well have, it, it may well have, uh, have come off. And so, yes, I mean, there were a lot of indications uh, and I think people like J.R. Seeger and, and David Tyson on Team Alpha and other CIA officers, uh, you know, at the time they were like, whoa, you know, this is, you know, we got rid of the Taliban and that's great. But, this, you know, maybe time now is to sort of hand, hand this over to the Afghans and it's going to be messy. 
and you know we can work with them and alongside them you know on the same sort of principles but if we get if we get too enmeshed in this you know it's going to be you know, look, look at what happened to the British and look at what happened to the Soviets you know it's funny every large institution is made up of the small individuals that are in it and uh, sometimes an institution can be molded by the individuals and more often than not the institutions mold the individuals themselves but i think it's it's good to remember that you know before the events of 9/11 if you were to set out a global map and said okay tell me what your first second and third tier areas of interest are uh, Central Asia specialist would probably be the fourth tier. It was just a, a backwater of a backwater. And I think David Tyson is such an interesting character in a couple of ways. Individual, I mean, he's an actual person, not a character. Um, is uh, yeah. We all have known, especially those of us who have, have been around academia, there are certain people in academia or in your life who have very unique and particular interests uh, that uh, – not that nobody else cares about, but many people don't discover. And he, he seems to have been one of those characters that um, had a take for language, was really in love with a certain part of the world that nobody else seemed to care, care too much about. And when you look at the, the CIA that has an, an institutional reputation, and most people either know it from reading fiction or some of the unfortunate characters that they see from the Washington, D.C. establishment that have a CIA tag on their uh, lapel. Um, but when you look at David Tyson, um, you know, Michael Spawn, like a lot of the guys um, on the paramilitary wing, are kind of out of central casting. But his wife, Shannon, as well, when you look at Shannon and David's background, um, it's it it reminds you that the, the CIA still has a history of finding some unique people that in the end, they are one person deep if you have a crisis in a part of the world. But talk a little bit about um, Shannon Vaughn and, and David Tyson's background and how they uh, kind of accidentally found their way uh, being talked into working for the CIA of all places. Yeah, so um, that's 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 exactly right, and and also you know Mike is interesting because I, I feel that Mike was um, in a way the sort of personification of America after 9/11. He's a conservative guy from Alabama. He was you know black and white with us or against us. He was first thing to get to Al Qaeda, um, but you know he died age age 32, um, and. Uh, and, and is therefore kind of frozen in time in this sort of monochromatic way. But, you know, I do believe, I mean, this guy called Brian, actually, who's also an Anglican, Anglico, <laughs> and not Anglican, uh, uh, Marine, uh, Marine Corps officer who served with Mike and j joined uh, the CIA at the same time as Shannon and Mike. They were on the same course at the farm in, starting in 1999. And Brian, I think, is just about to retire, but reached very senior rank, uh, held station chief positions across the world and became a case officer. And so, so Mike may well have developed, and I think you know the likelihood is he probably would have developed into uh, you know a very rounded and kind of broad-based CIA officer. Scott Spellmeyer was apparently you know he was the, sort of number three on the team, and he was a former ranger. He'd been wounded um, in in uh, the Black Hawk Down kind of battle of Mogadishu in '93. You know. He, uh, he broadened out, uh, became station chief in Kabul, senior CIA officer uh, on the National Security uh, Council. So the, so the, paramil the, the paramilitaries with talent you know, did, did tend to sort of broaden you know, over the past 20 years. But Shannon and, and David, yeah, I mean, Shannon was um, from Orange County, California, Christian background, but and, you know, very committed Christian and, and, and still is this day she'd been through she married her high school sweetheart um it hadn't worked out she'd, be, she'd become a lawyer um and she saw an advert i think in the economist um which was just targeted at you know people who were sort of different and she was you know um yeah she was the, interestingly she was almost the opposite of, of, of mike's fan you know i mean and, and, and in fact, the fact that he uh, 
marriage, I think, showed his sort of expanding horizons. And so she had no, she had no military background herself or, or in the family. Um, and, uh, but she, you know, very intelligent, you know, meticulous, sort of determined uh, person. And, and she had a, there was a sort of streak of patriotism in the family, you know, I think through the father working on the space program and stuff, but certainly not what you, you know, she told her friends she was joining the State Department and they thought that was unusual, but that kind of was kind of made some sense. Um, but actually she was joining the CIA. And I mean, David, um, you know, very modest background, Pennsylvania, kind of almost sort of, you know, very plain, simple kind of Mennonite kind of background. I mean, his, his brother, I mean, this, you know, I, I didn't get into this depth of his, his, his family in, in the book, but, um, uh, you know, it was interesting to me, his, his one brother, um, who's a, a plumber, uh, and has never left Pennsylvania and actually lives uh, in the same house that David grew up in, uh, where his mother's still alive, their mother's still alive, and she's 90, 94 now, and she, you know, she grew up attending a one-room schoolhouse, and they're still in Pennsylvania. But David, uh, for whatever reason, you know, when he was 17, uh, he wrote off the French Foreign Legion, said, I want to join. Um, and he couldn't because he didn't have money for the ticket to France. Um, but he joined the, he joined the, uh, the army as an artilleryman, you know, went to Germany, um, played, you know, played a lot of basketball, but didn't do much um, kind of hardcore stuff. And then he, um, he studied Russian. He took a course in, in Russian at college, uh, and he just sort of found his kind of path in life. He, was, he, he you know, realized that he was a gifted linguist. Um, he sort of calculated or was advised by a mentor that, you know, there was too, too many Russian speakers around, you know, if you want to have out a career in this stuff and you clearly love it, then go for an, go, go for a niche, go for something obscure. And that led him to Central Asia and, you know, learning Uzbek and, and Turkmen and, and just falling in love with, with that culture. Um, but at the same time, you know, his, his father uh, had been in the Navy um, uh, in World War II, and I think was uh, on board the USS Intrepid when it was you know, hit by you know, kamikaze uh, Japanese suicide bombers, um, and you know, so a, so a, you know, there's sort of a strong uh, patriotism there, and sort of a notion of service. And you know, David visited the Soviet Union as a student, and uh, you know, he believed he believed in America, the United States, the the American way, and you know, because he was going to these obscure places, uh, uh, you know, he um, CIA really found that out, and and, um, and and used to used to sort of de, you know debrief him, and you know they they declared themselves, and Dave was happy to help, and sort of asking him, you know, who he knew, what he'd seen, and you know, because he'd been to places where you know the CIA didn't have people on the ground, and um, and that. You know that person who would uh, debrief brief him, who was a woman who called herself Sandy. Uh, I think it wasn't her real name. Um, you know, she suggested he should apply to the agency, and um, you know, <laughs> David. You know, I've got to know David very well. I consider him a good friend, and his wife Roseanne. Um, uh, they were standing in a you know parking lot um, in uh, Bloomington. Uh, Indiana, uh, you know, in the snow, and David had this. They had two young kids. David had this offer from the CIA, and um, they, they were like, "Well, what, you know, what, what are we going to do? Which this is a fork in the road. We, you know, stay in academia and eke out this kind of precarious life, um, or do we go for this sort of new adventure?" And um, one of the deciding factors was was um, healthcare. You know, so. Um, who was good government healthcare, and so they, so they went for it. And, um, and another interesting thing about David is, I think he's um, he, he's always sort of a member of the tribe. And so you know, he he worked with homeless people in the in the sort of subterranean New York when he was a student at Columbia briefly. Um, 
and got so into their stories and, and their relationships and their sort of culture. And almost, you know, Rizan was a bit worried that he was sort of, you know, becoming one of them. And I think in academia, he, th- he threw himself into it and made some great sort of friendships. And, and, uh, and, in this, and, and the CIA was his, was his new tribe. Um, uh, and so uh, he, he threw himself into it. And he's, you know, he's, you know, as you intimated, he's a person who you know, plows his own furrow. I mean, he hates bureaucracy, he hates paperwork. Um, I mean, he will, he's, he wants to get things, he knows how to get things done, so he will work in, inside a system um, and not, you know, just all the time, like some people do, and those are the careers that tend to end in, in, in disaster. But, um, you know, David is sort of notorious for doing what David sort of wants, wants to do um, and getting people to uh, do what he would like them to do. And so... Yeah, a really interesting person, you know, with you know, difficult to manage, but with, with sort of immense talent. And, you know, I do think uh, we need people like that in, in the CIA, in, in the armed forces, um, because otherwise you have groupthink, um, you become, you know, it's, it's all about, you know, zero defects mentality and risk aversion. And uh, I think... This early period after 9/11 showed that you know that some of the mavericks, the people who you know came at things from a different direction and kind of thought outside the box, to use that sort of cliche, were the type of people that we needed. Mark, are you there? Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, early on in the book, you, you were <laughs> discussing the it's that on-off switch again. Um, the, uh, the the friction between the U.S. military and the CIA teams, and and sometimes the military was was so risk adverse that it was it was causing issues for the uh, for the CIA uh, teams trying to get on with their mission. Could you kind of discuss that a little bit? Yeah. So, like a lot of these things on the ground, uh, they w- work together almost seamlessly. So, ODA five nine five. The- it's four soldiers, the movie 12 Strong, 12 Green Berets, Green Berets who, who sort of came in after Team Alpha and sort of worked alongside them. And the other ODA that was with Atta. So Atta Mohammed Noor was the Tajik sort of warlord who was the ally slash rival of, of Dostum. And, um, and they eventually worked together to take Mazari Sharif. So a second uh, ODA came in with them and the smaller CIA team, Team Bravo, uh, which was three members, uh, came in to work with 534 and and, and, Atta. and that all worked extremely well. But the higher, the higher up the chain got, the more difficult it became. And so, you know, you had, Rom, you know, you had Rumsfeld and, and, and Tenet, um, who, you know, I think, you know, Tenet uh, worked Rumsfeld pretty well and was, you know, very good at sort of interpersonal relationships. But, but you know, Rumsfeld was uh, very upset that the Pentagon was not leading the war and, you know, made damn sure that, you know, the Pentagon was going to be in charge in Iraq, which is a completely different story. But, um, you know, you had had big debates um, in the army hierarchy about uniforms, whether to wear uniforms or not. Um, You had uh, a big debate about combat search and, and rescue. So there was this kind of doctrinally... You know, you couldn't have Green Beret teams going in unless you had CSAR in place so that, you know, if they got in trouble, um, uh, they could be rescued. Uh, and, you know, you couldn't have, uh, uh, you know, pilots flying um, without a, a CSAR sort of component. And CIA was just like, we're going anyway. And, um, and Hank Crompton, who was the, sort of the deputy to Purple Black, who ran the, day, ran the war sort of day to day, he was like, he said to Tommy Franks, listen, we'd love to have you with us, but we're going anyway. And so uh, that led to the CIA going in before, uh, before the Green Berets. You also had, um, you know, a lot of tension uh, over the ODAs, you know, led by captains, uh, army captains, uh, being the link with, the military link with uh, warlords like Abdul Rashid Dostum, who was, I guess, you know, in those days, always referred to as General Dostum and kind of a, a four-star, you know. Um, 
And so when uh, when the U.S. started winning, Rumsfeld was like, you know, don't we need some, you know, two stars or brigadier generals in there? You know, should we really be um, have the United States being represented by a captain? And so you actually had um, battalion elements, you know, lieutenant colonels flown in above the ODAs, which created a lot of friction because the relationship between actually Mark Nooch was the captain commanding 595 already built um, a very sort of strong rapport uh, with Dostum. And all of a sudden, he, he had a, a lieutenant colonel come in, elbow him to one side, and, and you know, he, he's the new, uh, he's the new um, sort of liaison guy with Dostum. And actually, two or three weeks after that, there was a two-star came in, <coughs> Rear Admiral Calland, Burke Calland, um, <coughs> who was... Um, Sock sent, you know, special special operations commander for central command. He took over from the lieutenant colonel, and the CIA was sort of you know mystified by this really because they had a very flat structure, um, and uh, you know you had J.R. Seeger who I guess was a GS-15, so kind of a colonel equivalent, um, but uh, you know David Tyson was a very junior officer but, you know, carried a fair amount of weight because of his uh, linguistic expertise and his recent experience in Afghanistan. And it was, it was quite a sort of, you know, JR was the chief, and they respected that, but it was quite sort of democratic uh, in a way. And um, it wasn't run, you know, along, you know, traditional military lines. Um, and, uh, you know, they would talk to Hank Crompton, uh, Every day, um, and uh, but they would make the decisions. Hank Crompton would almost always, you know, go with what J.R. Seeger or Alex Hernandez or David Tyson uh, wanted to do. Whereas the military had to go through um, Task Force Dagger, which was commanded by John Mulholland, who was a colonel, who really should have been a one or a two star there. And as Mulholland says that himself, but Mulholland had the Pentagon breathing down his neck, and sometimes even Rumsfeld himself you know, making, making calls um, to people, you know, who would get very upset when helicopters couldn't fly, you know, on the, you know, on the fairly um, reasonable basis that, you know, everybody might die if they did because the weather was so bad and the, 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 um, the altitudes they had to go. So, yes, it was, it was very different um, between the military and, and the CIA, and, and at the top there was, there, was, there was quite a lot of friction. You know, there there are some points in a story that you can you can look at a at a pivot point, and as you're talking about that, and you know, Colonel Mulholland seems like uh, his story you could almost make a book out of it as well. But you mentioned the point yeah. that oh, uh, yeah. uh, when Rear Admiral his boss, Rear Admiral Burke Collins, when he finally showed up uh, in Mazari Sharif, he he got off with his Master Chief who was carrying a starched uniform in its plastic dry cleaning bag. Yeah, that's that's one of those dividing lines when when things definitely change. <laughs> I want it because and because this individual is, is still with us and this is why, you know, this part of the story everybody's trying to uh partner with him is he's a larger than life character and I I just want to see how you felt about trying to tell his story because depending upon what angle or time you're looking at, you know, General or Marshal or Pasha, Abdul Rashid, Dostum, he's either, it's either a comedy, a horror movie, or a farce in, in trying to write <laughs> this character. Um, as, as a journalist who you know, really deals not without you know, people and event interchange, how did you go into writing this book with what, you know, Anybody that's been involved in business has a, an image one way or another of, of Dostrom. And how did you come out of it yeah. having to see his interplay with the other um, individuals in the story? Yeah, well, he's a fascinating character. You know, so I, I went to, you know, I spent more than a month in Afghanistan towards sort of November, December 2020. I interviewed Dostrom uh, in his kind of headquarters in Shebagan, which at that point was sort of surrounded by the Taliban. Uh, it took me 10 days to get in and nearly two weeks to get out because, you know, 
he had to he couldn't use the roads even though it would have been a 45 minute or so uh, drive you know the Taliban checkpoints and so he needed to get a helicopter out and, and all that um, I mean Dawson is a fascinating guy I mean I would not have put you know any money on him surviving the last 20 years but he's currently in exile in Ankara and you know I think he's done I think he's out of money um, he's you know, out of ideas. He's 69 years old now. His health is not great. I mean, he's uh, certainly um, been fond of the bottle over the years, and there's a, there's a kind of scene in First Casualty that I kind of enjoyed writing, which was on the night of November 25th when Dostum gets drunk. You know, he hits, he hits the vodka. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's, you know, his, his reputation precedes him. The, I mean, before 9-11, the U.S. government really didn't want very much to do with him, and and in fact, the U.S. government was not in contact with him. I mean, Tashkent Station was sort of, you know, in Uzbekistan was, was leading on Dostum because, you know, he's an ethnic Uzbek and the Uzbek security service had a relationship with him. Um, but uh, Tashkent Station hadn't got the green light to, to talk to Dostum. Um, and I think it would have happened within sort of weeks. But the first, you know, um, David Tyson spoke to Dostum after 9-11, you know, and he hadn't been able to do it. Uh, before and you know all these tales which I think are sort of you know many of them sort of apocryphal of uh, you know him you know tying you know enemies to the uh, tank treads and crushing them and and this kind of stuff I think the problem with Dossum who certainly had blood on his hands um, as did all of these guys um, I mean no sort of Mother Teresa's, you know, available in Afghanistan in 2001. Um, but he sort of gloried in this reputation because, you know, it sort of worked for him, you know, internally because he was regarded with sort of, you know, love but also sort of fear and, and clearly from his enemies. Um, and he was a wily character, but, you know, this didn't, re this, this didn't play well with, you know, Western governments. It didn't play well with the State Department. And there was this incident which I asked Dostum about, you know, notorious incidents, you know, the desert, you know, the Dash de Lely, the desert of, um, of I think it's the desert of lilies or the desert of death, lilies, I think. But um, there were, uh, you know, this allegation that he um, shot hundreds and the numbers kept on going up, thousands of, of, of Taliban uh, prisoners in containers or, or let them to date to death. And there were lots of incidents over the years of, prisoners being put in shipping containers in Afghanistan. It was a common sort of method of transport and, and keeping them and lots of sort of atrocities associated with, with containers. But this particular one uh, in late November 2001, which really stuck to him um, and uh, was the reason why he was basically persona non grata in the eyes of the State Department, has never been to the United States in, in the last 20 years. I asked him about it and I expected him to completely deny the whole thing, but he... Um, he said, well, you know, there was a young commander who'd lost two brothers to the Taliban, and he was emotional, and yeah, he did shoot a few of the prisoners. And so, uh, but I had nothing to do with it. I didn't know about it. And, uh, you, know, I, you know, I felt it was somewhat honest. You know, clearly something had happened. Um, and the, the allegations of the scale of this and U.S. involvement and CIA being involved and Greenberg being involved clearly not, not the case. Um, uh, but, uh, but, you know, that, that had been, that, that story had sort of been his, his, his undoing. And, I mean, he was really marginalized uh, after 2001. I mean, he was the, he was the, I mean, in 2001, he was the guy, you know. In, I mean, the, the Team Alpha members still revere him, and so do the, the, the Green Berets because, you know, while the Tajiks were just kind of, um, you know, frozen in place in um, in the Panjshir Valley, Dostum wanted to fight, and he had the means to fight, and he was a and he was a ferocious fighter, and that's what was needed. Um, but as a sort of, you know, you know, I guess as a, you know, a figure in the new Afghanistan, he wasn't really um, he wasn't really uh, uh, welcome. Um, even though, you know, he did have, um, you know, huge, huge sway in the north. So he was, I mean, it, you know, it's, um, it was fascinating to meet him. It was fascinating to 
learn about sort of his you know his his humor his his sort of wiliness his you know he was an uneducated man you know hadn't you know, left school at you know the age of twelve or, or something um, but uh, a really really interesting uh, character and there's a good biography actually of him um, you know very sort of positive kind of a positive take on Dossman but Brian Glenn Williams the last uh, warlord uh, but yeah I was really um, I was really pleased that uh, I was able to, 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 you know, get to interview him. Well, I, I, I was interested in the title of the book because uh, I don't know if you picked it, but, but you know, the, 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 the first casualty uh, in war um, has been known to be the truth or the you know, yeah. first contact with the enemy, or in this case, uh, you, you decided to Mike Span, but... Uh, um, Interesting title. Did you get to choose it, and and did you have all of those things in mind when you chose it? Yes, I did. I did. So the original title was the Fort, uh, because um, it was uh, the original idea for the book was to be much. I mean, Kalajangi. I mean, there's several chapters on Kalajangi, but I was going to focus much more sort of centrally on the sort of six day battle, and then I found out more and more about the overall um, CIA mission. Um, and so the, so the publisher, you know, we started batting around some uh, uh, other ideas. And Vanessa Mobley, who's my editor at Little Brown, uh, who's now actually senior opinion editor at the New York Times, she's just left publishing, sadly. Um, she, she came up with this idea, and, uh, and I liked it. Because, it, yes, it, it gets you straight into first casualty, you know, Mike's, Mike's back on one level. But as you say... Um, the truth, um, you know, the, the, the you know the um, the first casualty, you know, of any operation is 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 the plan, you know, when when reality sets in. So I, I felt it had a uh, a couple of, uh, of of layers to it, um, and uh, yeah, so that's what we went with. Well, Toby, it's been an absolute great hour, and I really appreciate the, the time to talk to you and uh, kind of point our listeners in the direction if they, if they haven't looked at the, uh, the beginning of the conflict in Afghanistan. Uh, and I think that seeing the background and seeing the players, it not only um, gives people a different perspective on that, but... It also, in a lot of ways, you, you did a great job of humanizing uh, the people who are in the CIA that rightfully so are often in the background and uh, gives a little bit of um, the, the human detail to that. Again, uh, Toby's book is First Casualty, the Untold Story of the CIA Mission to Avenge 9-11. The link is over on the show page. And uh, Toby, for, for the listeners, uh, what are you working on uh, next? And where would be a good place for them to keep an eye on you? Um, so what's next, you know, to be decided. But, you know, I've uh, you know, just written a, um, a proposal for another book. And, and you know, it's uh, you know, currently with publishers now. And so we'll see, we'll see what happens with that. But, um, but you know, I certainly, uh, you know, want to get – you know, I first bought Bandit Country about the IRA in, in, in Northern Ireland, and then it was 10 years before Dead Men Risen about British Helm, and then another 10 years before First, first Casualty. I need to up my hit rate, you know, so I'm not going to wait another <laughs> 10 years. Um, the, the way to, uh, otherwise we'll kind of run out of life here, you know, at the age of 56. Um, uh, but, you know, tobyharder.com is my website. You know, I'm trying to be uh, pretty available. I put... I, post a lot of content on Instagram, actually a lot of photos. I, in fact, I, I realized I had 16,000 photos from this period. Um, so I'm Toby Harden, one, the number one on Instagram, and, and at Toby Harden on, on uh, uh, so, uh, you know, the book's available on Amazon and all the places where books are sold. So, yes, I'm, I'm trying to be fairly kind of accessible these days. Well, that's great. I will definitely put a point there to your Instagram page um, on the show page. I'll update that. Um, thanks again, and uh, look forward to the opportunity to talk to you again at some point down the road, hopefully before 2030. Yeah, exactly. 
thanks so much. I really enjoyed it and appreciate you being on the show. No, thank you for talking to us. It's been great. Very informative. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for joining us for another edition of MidRats. Until next time, I hope you have a great Navy day. Cheers. over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.